So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as Yoremi from Social. And in today's episode, we're going back to share the recording from our marketplace chat and meetup that we recently had in LA with special guests Andrew Chen and Olivia Moore from A16Z, along with Aziz Alunim from Nash. So this is a really great moderated chat that we had where our guests shared more about marketplaces from both the investor and founder point of view. We dove into lots of topics like overcoming the cold start problem, fundraising, marketplace expansion, and more. So this is an hour-long chat packed with marketplace insights, so now you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. Well, let's give a hand to our host. Thank you for having all of us. Well, thank you. Um, so, so what I wanted to do is actually just talk a little bit about um, how it is that Andreessen Horowitz got excited about uh, marketplace companies, and then we thought we would do a uh, kind of point counterpoint thing where you know Aziz could talk about uh, his company Nash, and then Olivia, who's who's worked on uh, you know um, all the marketplace uh, you know um, opportunities over the last couple of years at the firm, can, can can talk a little bit about how we how we evaluated what we dug into. You know what were the references like? No, no, not that part. Um, and uh, and 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 just share share all that and and uh, go from there. But um, so so A16Z has had a long running um, uh, background in marketplace companies, and the reason why we've been so excited about marketplace companies is just because it's one of the few um, things in consumer facing products where there's just a really obvious defensibility. Um, as you as you get bigger, right? Um, this is you know as as all of you know, um, it's it's so hard to build consumer products where you know someone can't just fast fast follow you. And by the way, we're we're playing this out right now in all these AI enabled companies, many of which are kind of like you know really cool UX like kind of API wrappers on top of um, other foundational uh, you know AI technology. But you know, the question is, what's what's what what is the defensibility? And so we we got so excited, I think, over the years about the fact that if you know you have a buy you know if you have buyers and you have you know sellers that all the buyers want to show up because all the sellers are there and all the sellers want to show up because the buyers are there and you have the, those network effects and and those are great. And so it it literally has gotten to the point I think in in the first ten years of the firm. This is before before Olivia or myself. Where the consumer strategy, the consumer investment strategy at A16Z was a marketplace strategy. That was the core focus of of the business. And so, you know, since then we've 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 obviously um, done done a lot more. Um, and uh, and you know, but uh, one one of the big things is uh, you know I'm so excited to have Olivia here on the panel as well because she and I um, over the last couple of years have looked at hundreds of opportunities. And then as I have now moved over to kind of next gen, um, you know, sort of uh, gaming and other other things, I'm running running the A16Z Games Fund. Um, Olivia is the new head and leader of marketplaces at A16Z. And so she's going to have a lot of fans, um, a lot of friends uh, all of a sudden. And so um, so it's great to just, you know, have her on the panel. And and so anyway, thank, thank you everyone for, for joining. All right, so let's talk Nash uh, disease. Tell, 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 tell us about tell us about Nash and absolutely. maybe maybe a little bit about you too as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll start off just to introduce everyone uh, to to Nash. Our our mission in Nash is to uh, make it easy for any business to offer reliable local delivery. 
Um, and we do this by building all the software components that businesses need to offer this to their end consumer. This starts from eligibility, pricing, route optimization, uh, live tracking, operations, customer notifications. It's a complex stack that a business needs to actually compete and offer reliable delivery. We build all these software components and all of this sits on top of a marketplace uh, with more than 500 delivery providers uh, that actually go and execute these jobs. And then we basically sell this software to platforms, so point of sale systems that want to offer delivery as a first class experience. We uh, sell this to marketplaces, so marketplaces that create transactions that they choose to want to facilitate delivery for them uh, would use Nash, and we sell that directly to uh, merchants as well um, that have the ability to integrate that into their uh, tech stacks. So that's that's what we do um, at Nash. And it, it, Well, and I was going to ask, by the way, I mean, there was a period where every company that wanted to do delivery would just go try to hire their own drivers instead of integrating with an API like yours. And like, why, you know, like, what, why, why did that stop? Why, why did people stop doing that? Maybe in the founding story. So I started Nash with uh, uh, Mahmoud, my co-founder, and I've known him since high school. We did science fairs in LA here together, actually. Uh, and then we were classmates at MIT. Uh, prior to Nash, Mahmoud had a a gig work company, and he was running a gig work company. And um, myself, prior to Nash, I started a, a marketplace for uh, bilinguals to volunteer as translators for humanitarian organizations. And we kind of grew that marketplace to be the largest organized translator community. And today, every large NGO uses that to get access to translation. Um, and then when COVID hit, um, Mahmoud and I kind of came together and there was this surge in demand for delivery, um, but there was a giant gap in the market where on the demand side, they lacked the ability to scale reliable supply. So if you hire your own drivers, all of a sudden recruiting was a giant challenge. You're, you could not figure out how to scale it. And if you work with a, with a marketplace uh, or a singular um, third-party provider, uh, then you are entirely limited to their ability to offer that service to you. And then on the supply side, what we saw during that period is different supply networks were working at completely different utilizations. So the supply network that was doing pizza would would peak at dinner time, uh, but the supply network that did um, pharmacies and florists and and uh, retail would peak in the morning. And these different utilization peaks were just gone unutilized. So when we saw a surge in demand in the market in COVID, the gaps became very, very clear. And our biggest thesis around starting Nash then, and you know, Mahmoud's experience running that uh, gig, uh, gig work community and uh, me starting a marketplace before is our thesis is a marketplace can actually optimize these inefficiencies. So the, the big thesis was how do we uh, use a marketplace dynamic to optimize this across the entire market uh, where a merchant now can run at the optimal level, but at the same time, the providers end up with a more optimal network utilization. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I remember, you know, at Uber, we had kind of, we made a similar observation, which is, um, you know, when you, when you drive people around, 
that happens often, you know, after work and, you know, on, 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 uh, 2 AMs, you know, mysteriously people want to go home, that kind of thing. But, um, at the same time, um, there were, there were, you know, time units like lunchtime where Uber Eats could be layered on potentially the same, same supply. And, you know, the thought was always, well, you know, if you utilize supply better, you pay the supply better than of course, um, you know, if you're, if you're, if we're competing against our, you know, pink mustached uh, rivals across town that we might be able to um, ultimately be able to, 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 to pay them better and win them over. Um, and, and then and Aziz, could you talk a little bit about like, what is the first, you know, kind of, you know, I, and I don't know what the right unit is, right? But like, what's, how do you, how did you get your first batch of drivers? What is the first batch of apps, you know, on that simulate the demand side? Like tell, tell us kind of the, the early kind of year one cold start problem kind of, you know, thing. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when Mahmoud and I started working on on this problem, I think one of the thing one of the first things we we used to do is um, be very vocal about what we're working on. Um, and you know, we anyone who cared to listen to what we're trying to do, uh, we we talked to uh, about, and uh, um, that actually created a really nice um, uh, kind of effect of us closely getting closer to more experts in the space that potentially even had. A lot of experience and verticals that we were interested in, so we had a lot of really amazing kind of conversations earlier on. Um, and part of in that early phase was talking to a lot of customers. So we did outreach. We talked to um, a bunch of customers uh, who were having these problems. It's kind of a hair on fire problem. People would get on the phone immediately from the first kind of email. That was a really large positive signal for us. Um, and in that first batch of customers, I distinctly remember one of them was actually um, COVID kits delivery. So at around that time, you know, it's COVID. And there's, there's this thing where they're saying people are stuck at home because they think they have COVID, so they can't come pick it up. And it'll take three days if I ship it. But how do I get it to their house and then have someone pick it up and back to me? And this is, the, this is one of the earliest use cases where um, we onboarded this demand. Uh, for some part of it, you know, maybe, maybe some of us had to get in their cars and fulfill their own, uh, but you know, maybe. Um, but but you know, you have demand, and you go immediately to supply and say, "Hey, I've worked for you," um, and that that pitch went really well. Where they say, I, "Can you go and fulfill this work for me?" Now, remember the technology, the platform, the enablement. This is all very very weak. Right? Like none of it, maybe a lot of it, non-existent too. Uh, but this is really that starting point where. Um, get initial demand, go find supply to fulfill it, get this transaction multiple times. And this is when we start to figure out how to fit this into a platform play. Um, and you know, part of creating these really nice early conversations, I, I think that's, you know, we had a really awesome conversations with Kevin Novak, who was um, very early at Uber. He led their data science team. Uh, Kevin in turn like introduced us to, to Andrew as well as, as you know, an expert in the space. and. This this definitely was a big part of our kind of early start conversation. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, well, maybe now we'll we'll turn it over to Olivia. Um, talk a little bit about how when a, a, a new marketplace kind of startup opportunity, um, you know, hits your inbox, and and maybe you know to the extent you remember the Nash, you know, yeah. thing, obviously very very memorable. <laughs> um, and you know, since since we did we did double down, um, you know, talk talk a little bit about how you typically. Um, evaluate, you know, what do you, what do you look at? How do you think about it? Um, and then, yeah, you, you, you use any examples as, yeah. as, uh, as 
I actually reread our Nash seed memo this morning in preparation for this panel. And thankfully, we got to the right conclusion twice in a row with you guys. Um, but it was back, I think it was fall 2021, was your was your YC class maybe, and when we made the original investment. Um, had a lot of the core things that I think we got, got us excited about Nash that have since proven correct. Uh, so for the seed for us for marketplaces, I would say there's like two or three kind of core questions we're trying to answer. So one would be like macro level, do we think this is an exciting market where a marketplace can be built? And in this case, like everything that you both mentioned around the need for on-demand and scheduled deliveries is larger than ever and it's growing. We were like, okay, check that box. We talked to a lot of our own portfolio companies that were either marketplaces or services businesses in food, in pharmacy, in storage, and they were all telling us, this problem is not solved for me yet. Uh, when Nash is up and running in more cities, we would love to use them. So that kind of checked the box for us on the market side. Well, and, and I remember a couple folks were using the DoorDash yes. API. And of course, you know, some of them also kind of feel like maybe they're going to compete with DoorDash. Yes. And so they would rather not use the API yes. if they could. So I remember that was an interesting kind of strategic. Yeah. You know, or they didn't want well. like the car that smelled like French fries to be delivering yes. <laughs> yes. important Rite Aid pharmacy. Uh, and then the second component, I think, for us, for marketplaces at the seat is definitely team. Y you both had had amazing, you and Mahmood had had amazing marketplace experience. And you had worked together. We don't often find co-founders that go all the way back to high school science fairs, uh, which was an incredible opportunity with, with Nash. Because for early stage companies, I think whether the founders are a good fit and, and whether they end up sticking together is like one of the actually largest risk factors that we've come across. And then the last component at the seed, and it, it's a little different at the Series A, which we can talk about. But at the seed, it's just like, is something starting to work here? You guys were, I think maybe had a few dozen customers. I won't reveal the exact numbers, but you were like doubling every month. And this was maybe five, six months into the company. And I would say that's not infrequent for us of, of seed marketplaces that we invest in where the momentum is just so strong in the early days that they're growing, you know, 50, 75, even 100% month over month for those like first six or nine months or so. Yeah, actually, in fact, um, I know I know you keep, yourself uh, a whole series of benchmarks and things i think some of this have, has been published some of it hasn't but yeah do you want to do you want to just uh yeah at a high level talk yeah. about what 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 you typically benchmark against? absolutely yeah so we keep like every marketplace we see we just record all the data across a ton of things like transaction value gmv number of customers gmv retention all of these metrics um and so, and again, we can talk more about this, but one of the questions for marketplaces is always like, can you make the leap from that first vertical or from that first geography into the next one? And you guys have, I think, blown that away. Like you have massive enterprise customers now and like you still are working with many SMBs and that continues to grow and they're very happy customers. But you guys absolutely knock that, knock that concern out of the park, which is great. Awesome. Um um, and, and Aziz, maybe we'll, we'll go back to you on this, which is kind of around your company financing strategy and everything, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, th these days I would say, you know, we we tend to maybe we'll invest in like one or two YC companies a batch, something like that. But um, it's not our usual it's not our usual focus. Um, however, I know for for you, you, you guys you guys went through it, seemed to have a great experience. Talk about, you know, would, would you recommend that for people? Like, you know, what's your take on 
going through an accelerator versus trying to raise money yourselves and you know just 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 talk about that kind of early decision yeah that's a it's a good question so um i'm a two times yc founder so maybe a little bit biased here you're a super uh, fan uh, but yeah clearly i think i'm a super fan i think the um the psychology of a founder as i think about it when i start a company i think one of the initial fundamental things that um I want to do is build my own conviction. And, you know, as a founder, you absolutely should know that, you know, fundraising and hiring and doing really nice campaigns and collaborations, they should always be a, a means to an end. Um, and that end should be building a healthy business. And um, one of the hardest questions you have to ask yourselves when you're, when you have an idea is, do I want to work on this for 15 years? Because that's what it takes to, to build a really good, strong company. Um, and and it's, not, it's not an easy exercise. And I think um, one of the best things I learned, I think, from my previous experiences starting companies is to be very honest with myself. Um, and I don't think it was an easy journey for me uh, to separate the excitement and the data points that get you excited and potentially convince others to hear your story and follow it to actually convincing yourself. And I think one of the really good things that I recommend YC for in general is they have a good energy of, of pushing some sort of a hard questions very, very early on. So many successful companies will not go through YC and that's totally fine. Uh, one of the things I like about them is I when I reflect on how I brought this psychology, I felt that I got a lot of this from the first time I did YC. Um, so when I got the opportunity to decide if I want to do it again, um, part of it is, look, building a company is extremely difficult. There's a hundred thousand things that can go wrong. And if YC can de-risk one element, which is potentially upfronting a lot of the hard questions for me and putting up front um, is going to de-risk some of it, then it, it was a clear yes right. for me. And this is generally how I frame it uh, to people. Um, but, you know, uh, I think it's worked really, really well for me in the past. And um, and, 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 Gary, and Gary's back running it also as well. We're, we're, we're big fans of, uh, of, of Gary Tan and, and, and the whole team there. Um, what do you do? I mean, so, so you're going through YC and, um, you know, and then at some point, um, uh, you know, some, some, some investor stuff starts to happen. Like yeah. talk about kind of like the sequencing I, of that. I think there's one decision that I made, which is even prior to IC, we've decided that we're not going to raise any money before we have revenue. And that was an explicit decision we made. Um, why? why? Um, because we believed that for both of us to have enough conviction in this business, um, we are going to need to see customers' value created. And if it does not uh, map to dollars, then we will never know if that value creation is real. So this is just a decision we made upfront and it worked for us because at that point in our careers, we were able to basically afford that decision. Um, and I think that's just one starting point. Um, and in the way we ended up doing it is by the time we had started YC, we had our first couple of customers onboarded Throughout the YC kind of time, we um, we were focused a lot on scaling that customer. Throughout that time, our conviction is 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 uh, growing, um, you know, really really fast. Um, and 
the way we approach that fundraising is to basically say, okay, we are going now to a point where we want a little bit of capital to validate this thesis from a couple of customers that you know see value to a business. And there's a transition and that was the thesis for the capital. And we did the model and calculated it and figured out the number that we want. Uh, and this was the core of us. Uh, at that point, we did run a process, talked to a bunch of investors and our, our, you know, maybe the one helpful thing is like, how did the outcome happen? I think yeah. for us, uh, if you go back to us talking to everyone earlier, we ended up really learning who are the experts in the space. Uh, and I think when we met Andrew and Olivia, one thing that fundamentally stood out is the deep understanding. Making this happen, we knew we did not make all the right decisions up front. We, there's a bunch of things we did not, we, we made wrong and we're gonna need to uh, iterate on some elements. So when you find people who fundamentally understand that space and actually have the resources to support you, it ends up being extremely more, va more valuable than the capital itself. Uh, and that was for us a really, really fundamental decision. And, and, and you know, I think especially the founders of the audience might, might actually enjoy hearing a little bit about the tactics is, you know, like how, you know, when you're, when you decide to run a process, like what, what does that look like, you know, in terms of architect, like how many, how many firms do you put in? How do you decide to like, you know, pick, like to what extent does the offer matter versus the people? Like just talk, talk about, give, give some, give some opinions there. Yeah. Um, I, I would say you, you, you have to start with your, uh, business thesis and business needs. So you cannot run a process if you do not know how much money do you need and what for. Um, you, a process is not a fundraise maximizing exercise. It's not a thing to do to raise as much money as possible. A process is something you run to achieve your goal. So you have to set your goal up front. And the, I think the biggest lesson I've gone that I think worked really well is to hold yourself accountable for the goals that you want to achieve. And if you ever would deviate for them from these goals, go back to that point. It takes a lot of discipline to be honest with yourself. So it's very easy for someone to go, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, it's better to triple uh, the amount I'm raising or um, let me take this uh, money because it's a better brand name or a hundred reasons that you have. Can you map this to you being honest with yourself about building a successful business? And what that looks like is when, when you're disciplined, it's really important to project that discipline to everyone else in the process. So being fair was something that was really important for us. So we set a goal. We set a deadline to make a decision. Everyone we talked to knew that deadline. And that deadline, at, like, we had to say no to a lot of investors. We still have really amazing relationships with them today. They have no investment in our company. Why? Because we were fair in the process. We were transparent. We were not playing tactics upfront. We had a goal. We told them what our goal was. We had a deadline, told them what our deadline was. And these, these transparency elements, I think they're so obvious. They're just so hard <laughs> to actually stick to during the process because you'll see something and you're like, should I just kill the process? But then, you, you know, there is, I think sticking to it is the hardest part of my running the process and it pays dividends in the long term. And, and, you know, obviously pitching 50 investors is too many. Pitching two is too few. Like what, 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 what did you guys decide? And what was the, what was the group that got to qualify into the kind of the first, the first set that you, you were pitching? Yeah. I, I mean, th this is the point where it's tough to, to honestly isolate our own capabilities than maybe some of the ecosystem. Um, a lot of the investor uh, interest, most of it was either inbound or from that network that we've created earlier. 
Um, so we biased towards the network to begin with. That was a very clear kind of filtering criteria. Um, and then from from the inbound, I, I, I think we actually had, if I remember, 90 to 100 like meeting requests. Obviously, we couldn't do all of it. Um, That's a lot of meeting requests. Yeah, so, 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 so we kind of, I think we, we just really focused on who is working in our space, um, yeah. who has uh, relevant experience, who has a good reputation. Well, and, uh, and maybe the, and maybe one last thing before I switch back to Olivia is, is you know, what do you think, what is, give us the critique on on the investor community. Like, do you think people understand marketplace companies? Is it, is, or is it, is it too weird? Is it just because it's not a social app? You know, like, like what, what's your, what's your take on this sophistication? Um, I think, I think one of the most powerful things about marketplaces is kind of what I call incentive engineering. I learned this from Terjum Lee, the, the volunteer marketplace I, I, I made, which is, you know, one way to evaluate a marketplace is the transaction. And you say, oh, great, like liquidity, transactions, um, is there movement? Um, and what I think is fundamentally as a thesis more important and will lead to liquidity and transactions is the incentive alignment of your marketplace. I think the ha it's very easy to set up a place where you say, well, um, you know, demand wants to um, what wants to have access and, and kind of supply wants to sell more and the best proxy for this is is liquidity. I think one fundamental aspect of our people's incentives align. And I'll give you an example. In our first company, we have a, uh, the marketplace has volunteers on one side and has humanitarian NGOs on the other side. And for one of the hardest things we thought about up front is how do you incentivize this marketplace to have liquidity? And we thought about gamifying it. We couldn't pay people because you know, you'd have the money, who, who pays them? Um, and one of the biggest learnings that volunteers get this instant gratification when they help someone. And that was the, like, the core thing that built this marketplace. And when we understood it, when we understood that, hey, volunteers get instant gratification from doing free work, if it's scoped and filtered for them and you ensure you're not wasting their time, all of a sudden you build the largest volunteer community for translators, or sorry, it's the largest translator community period in the world, service more than 100 languages, every NGO in the world would use it because now there is supply that's available. The NGOs care about reliability and availability, the more kind of basic things. Um, but now when you evaluate this uh, marketplace, you can say, okay, great, there's liquidity, there's transactions, but it would have been impossible if the fundamental incentives were not there. And I think, you know, for Nash, these incentives were the merchant side needed reliability. It, it, I think, they're, they care about 10 things. The most fundamental one is reliability. When I tell a customer, your goods are on the way, they need to arrive and they need to be reliable. The supply side needed predictability. They needed a lot of other things. They needed fries, they, but predictability was the big thing. If you crack it, if you figure it out. And I think this is not necessarily something that in your conversation with an investor, it's very easy to right. sell. Right. But it's so fundamental to you as a marketplace to understand the incentive engineer. Right. Well, and, and, and just to build on this point, I mean, I think, you know, this is one of, in my opinion, one of the fastest ways that you can figure out, you know, as you, as, as all of you are evaluating investors while you're talking with them, is do they think of every problem from, from a multi-sided perspective, right? Because it's, it's easy to say, you know what, 
I wish, uh, you know, I could hit a button and then, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and the car, the car is going to show up and I shouldn't, the, the driver shouldn't have to talk to me. I should have a do not talk to me button. And I should have a, you know, and all these things where you're kind of like, okay, yeah, you're, you're thinking about one side of the market at the expense of the other side. And you don't even understand what the hard side of the market actually, you know, is, 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 is meant to be. And so, no, I, th I think this incentive engineering thing, I think is, is exactly about the, the balance between, um, you know, each, each of these, each of these pieces. And so, um, you know, to transition a little bit, Olivia, I know in the background when you are uh, thinking about Marcus Place companies, I mean, they're all so different, right? You, you know, you have, we've done, we've done stuff in pets, we've done stuff in food, we've done stuff, you know, where people are selling, selling things um, uh, over, over video streams, there's real estate, there's, there's so, so many different things. You know, what, what is your strategy to kind of just cover you know, these different spaces or lanes and talk about some of the themes you're excited about these days yeah. as you kind of map these out. Just talk about that whole thing. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because there's so many types of marketplaces. Like even these days, I'll look at some, you know, B2B construction materials marketplace where people are selling asphalt to, you know, someone else in a construction site in New Jersey, which you think would be like vastly different from like, you know, a teenage girl selling her vans or whatever brand is cool now on like depop or something like that but i think what we have found is like a lot of the kind of metrics that represent whether or not something is working on a marketplace actually are fairly consistent across these like types of verticals and industries and that's the kind of thing that that we look at um from the highest level perspective i think what we love to see is people building businesses on a marketplace whether it's you know, actual existing businesses that are kind of turbocharging their sales. Or, you know, one example would be Airbnb has created this whole new class of hospitality businesses that are now multi-property. Turo has people who've bought 10, 20, 30 cars that they now run fleets through something like that. Depop, as an example, there's now teenagers who go to Goodwill every weekend and rifle through all the bins and they sell, you know, thousands of dollars worth of inventory every month. And so I think that once you have people building businesses on your marketplace, they are kind of driving your growth for you, like the flywheel is really going. And so there's lots of metrics that we look at to see how well that's working. So it's, you know, growth in supply, growth in demand, how quickly are, um, kind of is supply taken up? What's the fulfillment rate on the marketplace? What does turnover look like? Some of these metrics we've developed are things a little more complicated, like GMV retention, which Nash has always been incredible at, which is not only like how, how often is some, someone coming back to transact again, but ideally they're coming back to transact more than they did the first month. Like maybe they spend $50 month one and $100 month two. Um, so often, you know, we're investing in seed marketplaces where they're maybe doing 30 to 50, 60, 100K in monthly GMV, which is a feat. Like it's hard to get there, but it's a whole nother level to get to 500K, a million in monthly GMV. And so at the seed, it's those things I mentioned around the market, the team, are there like early signs that something's working? At the Series A, it's more like, okay, do we have line of sight that this can be at least a few hundred million dollar company and get to the Series B, you know, from the Series A in the next couple of years. Ideally, uh, for us, especially as a multi-stage fund, if we're making a Series A, we want to bet that it's going to be a billion dollar company or bigger. 
One maybe example from our own portfolio would be Whatnot, which is like a, a live shopping marketplace. And at the seed, they were just doing Funko Pops, which is this very specific type of collectibles. And you can make the bet, I think, at a seed round that, you know, a Funko Pops company could get to an interesting Series A. But by the time they're at the A, they had proven, okay, this works for fig pins, which is another collectible. This works for Pokemon cards. This works for sports cards. Um, so you want to start seeing between the seed and the A that it's going to jump in that either that starting market is big enough to be one, five, ten billion dollar business, or that they're going to make the jump because they've enabled such a compelling behavior for buyers and sellers into whatever that like next industry is going to be. And for for you guys, it was like expanding from the local businesses into regional businesses, you know, multinational enterprises, and then also continuing to to grow the supply pool too. Yeah. And, and, and I think that this is, you know, this is also one of the biggest head fakes in, in the marketplace industry that I think investors who are untrained um, can easily kind of be deceived. I mean, there's actually a really funny uh, email exchange between Fred Wilson from Union Square and Paul Graham of, of Y Combinator um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 they, and they published this all publicly. So it's, it's in, in, in good fun. But literally the original pitch, I mean, people just really thought that Airbnb, aka Air Bed and Breakfast was literally going to be, was a bet that travelers wanted to sleep on air beds. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to like go from there into, oh, wow, this is going to, you know, um, uh, you know, compete with, with Expedia and Hilton and, you know, kind of kind of the whole whole variety of it. And yet at the same time, it's obviously so advantageous to start, um, you know, start with a vertical. Um, uh, Aziz, talk a little bit about, you know, working with with your with your, um, you know, working with your investors, um, you know, over time. What what have you thought of as kind of, um, you know, and I think we, we have our answer to this, but, with, you know, what, why don't you share, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that you end up wanting the most help on kind of in in some of the early years versus some of the things where um you know where where that that of um you know where, where you guys are really heads down on it the starting point for this is were you successful at bringing subject matter experts on your side and it really changes everything for us because um you know for us um you know um you guys led our um um uh, investment and we had a couple other investors uh, join as well um, and there's a very clear difference between the experts in the space that are able to actually contribute into, let's brainstorm this together. Let's really strategically think about the business um, a year out, five years out, 10 years out. And I think for me, this is an exercise that is amazing to do in the case you have an investor that is an expert as well, uh, because you know they, they're incentivized, you ideally have built a really good relationship for, well, with them. They have the context of your business. They, they're, they're updated. It's not just a single advice in the void. So it's really nice kind of uh, all comes together where there's an expert that understands your business context that really wants you to succeed because hopefully they like you, but they're also incentivized to see you succeed. Um, and I think this is the first dimension where working with investors who understand your space. And I think we've been really lucky to work with Olivia and Andrew here uh, we work with um, Kevin as well in that um, kind of space because they really understand the space, the marketplace dynamic, the logistics space. What does what is the dynamic of this market likely to look like in five years? Um, and 
there's there's an exploration task. There's a there's a kind of an exercise to really think down to the fundamentals and build it up. And I think this is the strategic one. And then there's a lot of the tactical stuff where um, best go to market motions. There's I think it's really incredible that an investor probably has seen so many more experiments run than a single founder. And I think. There's always this like, you know, you got to run your own battles and learn and get your own kind of battle scars, but you should absolutely just try to get the download of, hey, what has worked? What didn't work in the past? I'm about to start to do something in like my go-to-market and my recruiting, all these tactical elements. Uh, that's another dimension where we've collaborated very yeah. heavily on. Uh, and I think especially with Andreessen, uh, I think we're lucky enough that it's not just the power of, you know, these two amazing people on stage, but there's a whole kind of firm behind it that yeah. really backs you. And I think that really shows, um, you know, the benefit is clear to us. Uh, we, I think, take advantage of it too much. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I'll continue to do so. <laughs> amazing. Well, and, and, and I always joke that, um, you know, the, the, the reason why um, venture capitalists spend so much time on Twitter is because it's like all the smartest people in the world come and tell us all the all the all their smartest ideas and all we have to do is the last mile of translating that into you know 140 characters um and 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 sharing it out with with the world as as original insight and that's 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 how that that's that's why we, we write such entertaining tweets so um uh it's crowdsourcing wisdom um olivia talk a little bit about kind of um you know people are sometimes shocked to know that a16z is over 500 people i think it's 530 something yeah like that. yeah it's quite quite um, what what does everyone do? Like it's a good question. <laughs> yeah, they're on uh, customer calls with us all the time. That's our baby. No, we have we have an amazing amazing team that I feel very grateful to work with. Um, we have probably somewhere between maybe eighty and hundred investors across all of our teams. So there's Andrew's Games Fund. We have a crypto fund. We have the kind of core venture fund, which is uh, where I work on the consumer team. And then honestly, most of the rest of our team, the other few hundred people are, are operating partners that are kind of in the weeds supporting our companies. Um, it is as specific as like helping you make your first sales hire. We have people who can help you do like a technical interview with an engineer and kind of gauge like, are they gonna be you know, good to, to join a startup that's 10 people? We have people that are on the go-to-market side who their job is to kind of form relationships with kind of the gatekeepers or hopefully the door openers at, at some of these big platforms and companies and help you sign deals all the way to as specific as like, okay, you got like a scary email from the New York Times. Like there's going to be an article about you. What That's you never do? happened No, before. never. Not to any of our companies. Um, and so, yeah, I think part of what Andrew and I do as well as, you know, kind of working directly with companies is just helping our portfolio companies like triage who within A16Z can basically help you almost like skip the line or save you weeks or months of work that you would have had to do yourself. And then best case, our founders like get to know our operating partners and can go just chat with them anytime they want, um, which hopefully is, I know they find it very fun. I, I mean, I, I, I literally could attest to that. We, we have people from Andreessen physically show up at our like customer offices <laughs> and say, hey, I got to talk to you about Nash. It's, it's, did, did they have invites or was this just a... I, I, don't, I don't think they were invited. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, so so uh, I, I want to I wanna hit the fast forward button and talk about, talk about future stuff. 
Um, and of course the, the, the big, I think I, I, in at SF tech week, I think I spoke at five different events about AI. I think you attended and spoke at quite, quite a few also. So uh, yeah, I mean, there were, there were, there were many, it's, it's obviously the, 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 the topic du jour. So we need to have the topic du jour, uh, add on uh, to the panel. Um, it's, talk about Olivia. I know you've been thinking a lot about this recently, which is, you know, marketplace companies are so much about using software to connect often humans with other humans. And um, obviously, you know, now you throw in this whole generative AI thing where maybe, you know, are humans going to get replaced? Is it going to be like, what kinds of work? You know, what what is going to happen to this marketplace sector because of AI? And what's your what's your thesis there? I think it's it's a spectrum. And it's funny because many of the marketplace businesses that were previously hardest to scale, like anything that touches real assets and is moving items from point A to point B, are now the safest almost from everything that's happening in AI because you can't chat GPT can't like drive something from you know yes. one <laughs> yes <laughs> we'll see um, I do think we're seeing like you know many of the in real life marketplace businesses are able to use AI to make their logistics or operations a little easier so we have a food delivery business and now they can use chat GPT to write more interesting or creative kind of descriptions for some of the items that are coming on board every week. Or, you know, they can use it to make the backgrounds of their images a lot more compelling to the consumers. And then maybe the far other end of the spectrum is like these marketplaces that are either digital assets or digital services. I would say Canva is like one example, which a lot of people don't think of Canva. It's a design platform as a marketplace, but they have historically had a whole cohort of human designers that are making these special templates and assets that then customers can come on and kind of buy and use to make their flyers. And Canva now has this interesting, almost existential question of like, we have data on all these designs and like we could just generate them for free for our, by ourselves using AI. Like, do people care that it was human generated? Like, do pe- are people just gonna want the cheapest AI only option? My take, I think many marketplaces are going to fall somewhere in the middle where maybe AI makes search on their platform easier. Like I would love to be able to talk to DoorDash and just tell it how I'm feeling that day and what I want to eat and have it, you know, bring up an option versus like 200 choices every time. Or like on the supply side, lots of travel agent marketplaces Imagine if all those agents can make the itineraries 10 times faster using generative AI on kind of the modules. So I, I, I don't think that AI is going to replace marketplaces at all, but hopefully will make the experience better for, for both sides. It, it, I mean, the, the, the travel one's kind of an interesting, you know, that, that, that's an interesting case, right? Because um, you could argue both ways, right? You could argue that uh, this technology is going to augment the travel agents and it's going to make them that much more productive. Um, you might also argue that it's going to replace the agents entirely. And so do, do you have a sense for like, what is the more exciting opportunity? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there are differences of like, you know, where you play in the market. So just to take travel as an example, there's a lot of luxury travel marketplaces that are geared towards people booking 20, 30, 40K trips for maybe themselves or their family. And in that case, I think AI has a role to play in helping to generate recommendations and scrape data. But uh, 
kind of the custom touch, the customer service, the having someone to call at any hour of the day <laughs> when something goes wrong or when they need a different, you know, option for something ends up being really important. Um, whereas the other end of the travel marketplace is like maybe you're just only willing to pay $5 and you're looking for a somewhat custom recommendation for like two days in, you know, Paris or something. Maybe in that case, AI ends up replacing the agents a little bit faster than it than it does in other cases. Um, we're already seeing some marketplaces offer almost a hybrid option where like the legacy product still exists. But if you want to go for like the light version that they clearly mark as kind of AI generated, it's a like a lower price option as well. Um, but I think we'll see a lot of evolution there in the next like year. Or so it's it's pretty early. To call well, it. it's it's so it's so amazing because I mean, it, you know, obviously this the whole industry has gotten excited and it's been like six months yeah. or something, you know, <laughs> and so everyone's already like, oh, my God, we need to regulate this or it's going to destroy everything or it's going to be amazing and like literally it's six spot it's like calm down you know <laughs> like we need to we need to actually like launch some companies first um you know on this um well a, a couple a couple final questions and then i think we're going to take some uh questions questions from, from the audience um aziz where your company is now maybe you could just you know share a little bit like kind of the um you know how many employees you know a little bit on the size and scale and then you know what's what? What is it that um, is 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 keeping you know you busy as you kind of look look into the future and like what's the you know you're I think ahead of um, quite a number of the folks here in terms of stage, um, and so that that'll help folks kind of uh, you know understand kind of what what they have to look forward to. Yeah, happy to share. Um, so um, today we're um, about forty five people um, in terms of a, a team size. Um, I think one of the biggest investments we've made, if I think of like the stages of Nash, one is the validate the thesis. The second one is how do you scale your 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 business and go to market? And I think we're we're at a stage today where we've made a lot of investment in our product being modular. Our mission is to make it easy for any business, underline any, to offer reliable deliveries, underline like reliable. So I our first kind of two years was how do we make this reliable and the software complexity there was was extremely uh, large and we've made really strong investments that we're at a place that I'm super excited about all the stuff that we've built um, and for the piece about any business we've made very conscious decisions about creating these modular pieces of the software because different businesses have fundamental different needs on how they want to fit logistics into their business. If your product is going to succeed, uh, you should fit to their workflow and not ask them to change how they do business. Um, and today we're at a stage where, um, you know, beginning of this year, we started this experiment of expanding the, or like really stress testing this thesis of, of any business. So we went from pure folks in the food industry to uh, pharmacy, flowers, and retail beginning of this year. Um, and next quarter, we're making a big push into the e-commerce side. Um, and first half of the year, we um, successfully launched seven countries. So we went from the U.S. only to um, uh, Canada, um, U.K., uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Spain and France. So this this was our first half of the year. And what's next for us in our kind of the, that year horizon is to really like stress test that into building that scalable platform 
where we collect the data now, did we make these right decisions on the product and are we able to actually take what we built uh, to take it to these new verticals and new geography? And does this software component piece truly scale? And you know, this is probably what I'm most excited about for our future at Nash. And, and I think uh, we, we saw some really awesome results first half of the year and, and this is our biggest investment kind of moving forward. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, so more, more geographies, more verticals, more functionality kind of on top. No, it's wonderful to be in the, in the, in the, in the scale, you know, kind of mode you know, for, for all this. And of course, you know, hiring all the right people ends up being, um, you know, what, one of the key moves there. And, and Olivia, um, for you talk, talk about kind of, if you had a request for startup, yeah. you know, kind of like, like what, what are, what are you looking for? Any particular yeah. opportunities and spaces in the market? Yes. We try not to be too maybe prescriptive in our own thinking about like, what is the exact marketplace that needs to be built? Because like, the data will tell us, <laughs> like the consumer base will tell us, like the if the flywheel starts going on a marketplace, it's really, really hard to stop it. Like, you know, to use the Airbnb example again, like if you were kind of very rigid in your thinking around like airbeds is never going to be like a big business, you would have missed kind of this massive investment opportunity. So we are, we do try to be open-minded with marketplaces in particular around like, look, you know, even if we aren't the user yet maybe we will be someday or maybe there's this other big community or market that being said <laughs> there are a couple big markets that we haven't seen maybe a massive you know multi-billion dollar marketplace emerge yet we're like okay maybe it's ai maybe it's you know something else market timing that could emerge so like you know blue collar labor like how people find jobs that aren't necessarily the typical office job like that's still unsolved in many ways Home rentals in many ways is still unsolved. Home services in many ways is still unsolved. So any of those big kind of greenfield markets, um, many of them actually still have room for a massive company. A lot of the, some of the ideas have been taken already, but there's a lot still to build. Um, well, and, and I was going to say, by the way, I think there, sometimes you also end up with products that categories that have dominant products, yeah. but then they end up being a little bit like calcified. Yes. You know, and exactly. I, I was actually just at a dinner with um uh with Sean Rad, who's who's one of the founders of Tinder. And Tinder, you know, it's kind of a marketplace. Um <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, okay. It is. No one can tell me differently. Um and so, you know, and, and I and I was asking, you know, Sean, because it's so amazing that they came up with the 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 swiping functionality like pretty much right right off the bat when as as they were building it. Actually this guy John Bedeen, who is uh, you know iOS iOS engineer on Tinder, you know built it, and I'm like, is it is this all there is going to be? Is this you know are 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 our grand great great grandkids going to be swiping away? There's got to be more, you know. Um, so anyway, so so it's all up to the to the Apple HMD to yeah. uh, you know to, to 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 make dating different. Yeah, no, but exactly like there was. I feel like when I first started as an investor, it was like the unbundling of Craigslist was the big marketplace graph and and then maybe five years later it was like the unbundling of ebay and then you know there's just more and more opportunity you know every few years that go by to build these like amazing marketplaces that take this thing that was working and kind of adapt it and update it to like the next generation of consumers which is exciting all right well let's give our mini panel a hand um i believe mike do we have some yeah, we actually have a, we're going to try to get in a two quick questions if we can right here. So, um, hey, how's it going there, guys? Um, 
quick question here. So name's Levi. And one of the things I do within everything marketplaces is, is leave fundraising. And so the question I'd love to ask you guys is, what are the um, biggest mistakes that you see either seed or series A fun, uh, founders do or startups when it comes to fundraising? You know, that way, you know, we're able to take some uh, advice here and, you know, be better for it. So. Okay, I'll start. And then Andrew taught me most of what I know. So you can chime in after. I talked about this as a pet peeve in my Everything Marketplaces video session already. And this is hyper specific, but I think you'll agree. When people make their graphs cumulative, for, instead of monthly, for some reason, there's just little things like that that I think, uh, you know, investors see and get kind of nervous about and think like, oh, maybe there's, you know, something underlying about the business that the growth is slowing. And in reality, nobody just ever said, like, don't make your deck that way, like make it a different way. Um, I would say like a maybe a higher, more helpful level would be like, think of the fundraise as kind of almost a narrative, like telling the story of your company. And a big part of that story is you. And so often, even when companies are coming in for the final pitch at A16Z, like you probably went through this, we will say like, take five to 10 minutes of the 45 minutes and just talk about yourself and your background and like why you wanna spend the next 10, 15, 20 years of your life working on this company. I think sometimes founders feel like they need to skip that or, or breeze past it, but it ends up being like really, really important. Um, Gosh, other than that, I would say we have, hopefully we try to publish some helpful resources on ways to kind of format your data, how to run a process. I've heard a rumor, I'm curious what you think. Some people are now saying, leave your favorite investors or your like dream investors to the end of the process so that you can practice. Is that true or how, how did you guys do it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I actually think like, uh, I, Definitely heard that. Uh, I, 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 I don't oh, think it be true. I, I don't think it's uh, you can practice other ways. Is my kind of <laughs> response to that, you know? But I, but I do think uh, the the I think the personal story is actually really strong because I'm in a community where I'm also surrounded by a lot of people that kind of fundraise, and I, I, I think I notice personally there's a big difference between those who. Um, answered the fundamental questions for themselves and were very honest with themselves, um, they tend to tell a very different personal story than those who the ultimate objective is to fundraise or I want to build a company because uh, it's just the thing to do. And and the, the I don't think anyone can help you with this personally but yourself. Like this, if you cannot be honest with yourself, it will leak somehow when you tell your own story. Um, and I think the the... The way I frame it is if you like have that honesty session with yourself and then conclude that you don't want to do this, this is an amazing win. You just saved five years of your career. Like, and, and I think that's the, it's, it's a thing that just so many people skip yeah. because we have so much content and culture around starting companies and entrepreneurship. There is actually a bunch of people that are just in the wave and never just paused and answered those questions for themselves um, and you know just take, Take a second, do that, and then continue, and then you'll you'll find that And every step, you're just fundamentally more confident, more comfortable. Um, you'll these investor meetings aren't a make or break for your business because it's just, you know, maybe this one will work, next one will work, maybe it's the next round. It's just not the end because you have that conviction, and they no one can take that away from you, right? Like it's yeah. no one can. I mean, it's a good point, and I, this is like a cliche advice to give, but there's. You know, Airbnb is one example. There's many companies where like at the seed, 
we don't invest, but like we do end up investing and investing in a bunch of rounds later on. At a much more expensive and price. At a much more expensive price, unfortunately for us. But like, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say like, don't take anything personally, but investors make mistakes like all the time. And I think we genuinely like love and appreciate when, uh, you know, we couldn't get there at the seed or the series A and the founder is willing to like keep us updated or talk to us again or kind of spend more time with us. It's always a pro for us when we feel like we've kind of seen more of the story and have more of an appreciation. You know, just so you guys have some empathy here, um, <laughs> you know, we, I asked, I asked, you know, one, one of the, one of the bits of advice that, uh, that, that, that our mentor, uh, Mark Andreessen, um, you know, gives us on this is, you know, when you meet a company and you say no and you make the wrong decision, then you just have to be content that you're going to be tortured every time you read about them yeah. for the rest of your career. Yeah. And so anyway, okay. Uh, maybe we could we could do rapid fire. We have one more. So. Sure. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Jeremy Gerowitz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Solace. And so we recently raised our seed round. I'm curious if you guys had any advice in terms of you've raised some money and you're ready to go and the trade-off between seizing the market and taking over versus just burning all your hard-earned capital and being left in potentially a challenging spot. It's a good question. And congratulations on the seed round. That's really exciting. Um, I think a lot of companies are thinking right now about cash management, especially as like the Series A and Series B markets are maybe a little slower than they were in 2021 or early 2022. I think our advice tends to be case by case, depending on the company. I would say there are some categories where it's like it's a winner take all category and there's already someone else in there moving fast, going at the same thing as as you. And so I think in those cases, like it it makes sense to kind of, you know, Ideally, somewhat not extremely in a negative margin kind of way, but but kind of keep up the growth like as fast as you can. And then, you know, just making sure you're keeping your investors updated and they are kind of on board and will like help you raise and get to that next round. And then th there are definitely other other cases where it's like, OK, let's target, you know, three or four X this year and not like seven X this year. And like we still think you know, there's not a, an, another extremely fast moving player in this space and we'll be able to to kind of raise the next round based on that growth level. Um, any thoughts from you on, on how you guys are thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is um, kind of raised capital is insurance against making the wrong mistake. So if you come and build an operational plan, I mean, obviously I think what Olivia said, you know, what market are you in and what's your company and what you're doing is fundamental. Uh, but then if you take all of this and then build an operational plan and you're, this plan A says, if I do these following things, I will spend all my money, but then I will win at the outcome. And in this plan where you spend everything, you're basically telling yourself, I have no room to make any operational mistake, right? And then you can create another plan where you spend half of your money. So you're saying, well, it seems like I can make a couple of mistakes here. So if I come out and I've made some mistakes, I have room for adjustment. This, I think for me, this framework really helps um, me think about spending because what you find over time is you just build more conviction and confidence about your plans because you're saying, okay, instead of doing all of this, what do I need to do to build conviction that this is the right plan? And you'll probably find a way to spend 1% of that money, just get some validation maybe on the first five steps. And then that framework seems for, to me to be the most kind of sound uh system where I could be comfortable understanding how to make this trade-off. You know, let's all give them a round of applause if you can, like, work.
So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.